This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I'm fired up for today because we have Peter Waldkirch. He's back. He's a lawyer. He's a housing advocate. Overall, he's a, he's a great guy. He's a owner of a Vancouver Real Estate Podcast t-shirt. He and, is. Uh, and and he's, he's a prolific Twitter uh, presence. Oh, yeah. We got to used to have a beard. He shaved. Uh, that's, that's, that's one thing I, I, I follow him closely on Twitter. Right. Uh, and, but why I was introduced to Peter and follow along so closely is because he literally follows along city council meetings and live tweets what's going on. Yeah. So there is nobody better. I think at this, at this moment, a couple of weeks before the election to revisit Peter's scorecard on the current council, uh, have they put their money where their mouth is? How have they actually voted over the last four years? How dysfunctional has it been and how much do we need change? And I think we cover all that with Peter today. And you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but there's no doubt about it. Peter is very passionate. Well, yeah, for sure. And now that you say it, Peter would look great in a beard. I, I just, I'm just thinking back looks to Looks great Peter. without a beard too, but he, yeah. he, he he's you know kind what? of a beard guy though. I feel like he Yeah, should, he, he, he had a beard uh, previously. That's not surprising. That's I'm sure surprising. he might have even last time he came in, he might have had a beard. But anyway. Right. You uh, know who can't pull a beard off, according to everyone at my office? <laughs> Me. <laughs> that was a funny week. Uh, so here's here's a, here's a couple of things we'll we'll mention is is before we jump into this conversation. It is a long conversation. Peter was gracious enough to join us in the studio, and uh, it was great having him in Kokomo Studios. And it was a great conversation. You're right. Very passionate. One thing is that scorecard is entirely based on housing, right? Yes. And and before that, you know, we've had Ken Sim on the program now. We've ran that episode twice. We're friends and fans of of Ken Sim Big and fans uh, of, of Ken, yeah. And ABC Vancouver. In addition, we we like some of the other counselors on on a variety of parties. And housing and affordability has been at the forefront of this program over the last six years. If you want to look at our catalog. We talk about it. I feel like we've we're yeah we've had abundant housing on uh, multiple you know, times and back 2016. I feel like we we've been yeah, anyone I, that listens. This is I, we housing don't have to is. Tell you I this. think housing is number one for me here and uh, for the Vancouver real What's estate number podcast. Two? Number two, and this is uh, this is the challenge, right? I was trying to think of which is the party that encapsulates these things, and one is housing. And I do feel like 80% of, as Peter says, 80% of the city being single family homes is just insane at this point. Sure. And it, we need a full uh, shift in terms of how we're thinking of, of housing in the city. Secondly, I feel like people argue about crime stats and crime numbers and are we up and are we not? And I don't, I don't want to wait in there. What I will say- You're not a numbers guy. <laughs> I'm not a numbers guy. <laughs> You're not a footnote I'm not, guy. I'm not a stats guy. Yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. You that's go stuff. by gut. Yeah, it's all visceral <laughs> with me. And my general sense, speaking viscerally, <laughs> is- There's a few people having a visceral reaction yeah. to this. 
Go ahead. Is is there's there, there's there's more disorder in the city oh, than there used to be. It, it doesn't, it, you know, and our offices, uh, it can be, you live in Strathcona. I walk down Commercial Drive with we my dogs every city. morning. I would we're we're we, all over the place, yeah. right? And and there's a general, it, it, there's more disorder and a, and a feeling of chaos and a feeling of like, who's that, who's steering this ship? What's going gotta, on here? I got to tell you. If you're looking at the last four years and you think Vancouver's a better place, <laughs> that's a surprising the, read yeah, on the yeah, city. And, and it's it's not all uh, Kennedy Stewart's no, fault. And Peter the, makes that point. As right? we talk about it, the mayor in Vancouver doesn't have that much power. But should he be left holding the bag, I think, is a, is going to be a question for a lot of voters. And we and and just thinking about that, we do have the discussion with Peter. Like, is it just us or do is cleaning the slate like? the right move here. Cause it just feels like the last four years have been a colossal waste of time and the city's worse off for it. And it just feels like voting back in all the incumbents or some of them even yeah. feels at this point, you know, and it's not to say there's 11 people there voting. So maybe two, three are good to have back, but it, it just, at this point, it's, I don't know. I feel like we're pulling our hair out a little bit. Well, here's the thing. We didn't speak up during the interview with Peter. We let him talk and uh, we asked the questions as we always do. And it's an interesting point of view. He makes a lot of great points. He's a super bright guy and he's talking about housing. Yeah. So if you're interested in housing and affordability in Vancouver, this is a fantastic conversation. And Matt, why don't we cut to our conversation with Peter Waldkirch? There's a lot to think about from this talk and uh, we've been talking about it ever since. So yes. uh, stay tuned for Peter and uh, enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Berquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Peter Waldkirch. He is a lawyer and a housing advocate and a past guest fan favorite. That's right. Oh, well, that's generous. Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, good. Peter? Yeah. Thanks for coming back to the studio. No, thanks for having me a lot. I really uh, appreciate being here. Yeah, no, good to have you back, Peter. Maybe for those who missed your last appearance, which was not that long ago, but I feel like we had you back because there's an election in less than two weeks. Can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? 
Uh, yeah, of course. So my name is Peter Waldkirch. I'm a, I'm a lawyer here in uh, Vancouver. I'm from Vancouver. I was raised here. And I'm basically just a guy who um, is really frustrated by the housing crisis in this city. You know, my entire life, people have been talking about housing, 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 housing. Uh, ever since Expo, people have been talking about housing and how expensive it's getting here. And every year, it just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. And it affects every aspect of life in this city in a really bad way, I think, the housing crisis. So um, for the last sort of four years or so, I've been involved in some housing activism uh, advocacy here in uh, Vancouver. I'm active with Abundant Housing Vancouver, which right. is a pro-housing advocacy group here in Vancouver where, you know, we really think that, you know, housing is a complicated issue. There's a number of solutions that need to be pursued, but sort of the, the basic one is that we have a huge housing shortage here in Vancouver and we can't solve all of the many problems that we're facing without first solving that basic shortage of housing. So that's what I've been involved in for the last uh, few years. And so to sort of help with, out, with that, I do, uh, amongst other things, I watch council really closely. I spend a lot of time live tweeting city council meetings, especially the ones that are related to housing. I go to, you know, workshops and all that sort of fun stuff. So, yeah. So, so one question, and I, I don't know if we talked uh, as much about this last time, but to timestamp this, this is the 4th of October. October 15th is the election. In my mind, it seemed like this election would hinge almost entirely on on housing. And, and now it's less clear that that's the case. In your mind, is housing the primary issue in the Vancouver election that's coming up? I think it is. I, it absolutely should be. Uh, housing is, you know, an area where our municipal governments have a huge amount of power. For better or for worse, we have given our municipal governments basically primary power over land use, which is a huge part of how our housing system works. And so I think that is something that absolutely should be front and center in the municipal election. And, and I think it is. I think that there, you know, um, public safety has obviously been a, a big discussion in this election, and that's an important issue. People absolutely have the right to feel safe in their communities. But I think for some politicians, you know, there's a fine line between reflecting the anxiety that people feel and stoking it and sort of trying to exploit it for sort of their own purposes. And I think some of our local politicians have sort of crossed that line a little bit. So I think housing is something where you know, uh, again, it's just a super important issue. It's on the front of everybody's mind. Um, and I think our politicians absolutely have an obligation to respond to it. And maybe just thinking about the, the position of housing, it strikes me that there is, you know, and we had you on before, Peter, and I think I, we talked about this a little bit, but just over the course of our podcast, we've kind of been in contact, like we've had folks on from Abundant Housing Vancouver uh, yourself, Kit Sauter. There does seem like there's a generational shift happening and it does feel like it's not, you know, before, at least from my perception, a lot of the kind of social movements are people in their early 20s, maybe on the fringes where, you know, it kind of bubbles into the mainstream. Right now, this movement you're a part of, like, it strikes me, people in their 30s and professionals, like it feels like a very different movement than we've had in Vancouver that I can think of. Is that your sense of what you're engaged in? You know, I think it's a couple of comments. You know, there is, I definitely think, a strong generational element to what's going on here. I think it's important not to, you know, overplay that too much. You know, for example, elderly people, you know, experience uh, poverty at, at high rates. Uh, you know, there's, so there's, you know, it's nothing so simple, but there's absolutely a sort of a generational power dynamic here where increasingly young people are cut out 
from the opportunity and the vibrancy that cities like Vancouver have to offer, where they're pushed out into long commutes uh, if they want to have a home for their family. They are pushed out into substandard living or to living with too many roommates uh, because there's just not enough housing available. And I think, um, you know, I think it's also another thing I would just sort of comment on that there's huge structural barriers to participating in these issues. So, for example, uh, some politicians always want more consultation for every, you know, we're in our system right now, basically every apartment building needs to go through a public rezoning process, public hearing process, where it's ultimately a political decision. And that's at the end of years of consultation of workshops and open houses and all this sort of stuff. Who can who can participate in these things? Young people who are struggling to find a home can't. Young parents who are struggling with daycare and their jobs can't. Retired people can. People who are very comfortable in their housing situations can. So I'm very lucky. I've got a, a good housing situation. Uh, more through luck than anything, I've got a flexible job where I work from home and I've got sort of the time and the flexibility to do this. But that's that's fairly rare. I'm very lucky and privileged to be able to participate in the way I do. And you know, many people can't. So I think there's real structural barriers that prevent the people who are in housing insecurity, who are struggling to find housing. There's major barriers that prevent them from participating in the system in a fair and just way. And I think that needs to inform how we think about the processes we build. I'm just thinking about the types of housing. When we talk about building housing, is it just more housing across the board? Or are we doing well in some areas of housing, maybe social housing or or is it missing middle? Like, how, how do you guys think of it? Do you think of it as a, like a holistic approach to housing? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a few things. I, yes, absolutely. The type of housing matters, but quantity matters as well. Scale matters as, as well. There's, you know, as I said, housing is a complex system, but at the core of it, there's this sort of game of musical chairs going on, right? And if there's more people than there are chairs, there's going to be losers, right? There's going to be people who don't have a chair, people who are forced to sit on each other's laps or, or whatever, right? And so, you know, there's different ways of allocating the housing, and that's definitely an important thing to talk about. But when there's this underlying scarcity, when there's just not enough housing to go around to begin with, everything else is kind of shuffling the chairs in the Titanic. You know what I mean, right? Like you can sort of try and shuffle it around a little bit. You're trying to allocate it better. Um, but that's you need to have abundant housing before you can solve these other problems, I think. That being said, yes, absolutely. We need a lot more social housing. We need a lot more public investment in housing. There's no doubt about that. But Again, all these problems are hard to solve when we reserve 80% of our land in the city for the most expensive, inefficient form of housing that exists, which is the detached house, right? Like literally apartments are banned on about 80% of our city. Uh, whether it's public housing, co-op, social housing, all that land is basically not available for all those other forms of housing, which we need. So we just, we'll never get enough public housing built. We'll never get enough co-ops built. We'll never get enough nonprofits, social housing, you know, all this stuff. We'll never get enough of it built so long as apartments are banned on 80% of the city. I mean, it's literally, it's kind of mind-boggling when you step back and think about it. We're in this housing crisis and we use the force of law to reserve most of the land in the city for the most expensive form of housing that exists. And that land pays the lowest fees, right? They don't, detached, detached houses don't pay, you know, development cost levies and community amenity contributions and all this stuff, right? But that's most of the land in the city. It's, it's a system that's designed to produce housing scarcity. Wow. 
You got Matt looking like I, a deer was, in headlights I was, here. I was going to say, no, that was a, a, a really succinct way of showing uh, the absurdity of of local zoning. Yeah, I, you know, it's really, um, it's one of those things where some things are simple, right? We don't have enough homes. We reserve most of the land in the city for the most expensive housing that exists. And, and why? Once you start scratching the surface... You know, the history of it is, is I think, pretty ugly. So Vancouver's first comprehensive city plan was named after this guy, Harlan Bartholomew. It's often called the Bartholomew Plan. It's from 1926, 1927. And you can read through it. It's available for free online. And he is pretty clear what he's doing. He thinks that apartments are intrusions into residential areas. He thinks that apartments are not a suitable place for families. He thinks that corner stores are intrusions into neighborhoods. Nowadays, those are the communities we want. We want vibrant, mixed-use communities where you don't have to drive everywhere. But that's what they were specifically planning for, right? And Bartholomew, when you look into what he's saying and his history, it's pretty ugly. He was, um, he's kind of one of the, you know, the founders of North American and Canadian zoning. He was an American is uh, he was uh, the first sort of professional planner in St. Louis, came up with their sort of first sort of zoning sort of plan. He was totally explicit. It was to enforce racial segregation. These plans, these first zoning plans, came out a few years after the United States Supreme Court. First cities tried to explicitly use sort of racial planning to enforce segregation, saying only white people can live here, you know, black people can only live here, and so on, right? The Supreme Court in the U.S. struck that down. So they pretty quickly realized, hey, if we just, you know, people who are less wealthy tend to live in apartments. If we just ban apartments. We can create neighborhoods that are effectively racially segregated. And that's mm-hmm. what he was, this wasn't like some secret. This is what they did, right? And so the roots of this zoning, it's, it's pretty ugly. It's to create race and class segregation, pure and simple. And uh, the effect of it is really, I think, uh, it's an ugly legacy. You know, the legacy we have of this sort of orthodox planning are widespread housing shortages across Canada and the United States. And so it's a housing crisis, and it's also a climate crisis, right? This is this sort of view of housing where you have strictly segregated, both by race and by function, housing, right? Neighborhoods of just pure low-density housing, no shops, no apartments, no nothing. This creates sprawl. This creates car dependency. It creates a sort of lifestyle where you need to hop in your car to buy a liter of milk, right? That's not a future that is sustainable in a world facing a climate crisis. And so I think we need to really rethink some of these assumptions about where we allow housing and why we, you know, we have this entire city apparatus that is basically designed around, that views housing as a threat, that views housing as something that needs to be tightly controlled and regulated and, um, you know, micromanaged. You know, we have city councilors walking around in these public hearings judging, oh, where's the articulation point? Where's the house? What's the landscaping like? City councilors shouldn't be doing that, right? We're never going to resolve our housing scarcity so long as the system stays the way it is because it's doing what it was designed to do, which is create housing scarcity. You no, know, one, one thing that I'm just thinking of here is, you know, Vancouver aspires to be a green city, the greenest city, however you want to, I'm sure they have some branding. I can't remember exactly. The, the greenest city. The greenest city. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and at least when I think of urban planners, I think of generally speaking, progressive people. And, and I, I feel like the, the micromanaging is, is definitely the case here in, Vancouver, but but how do you square those two things? Where it's like we have uh, uh, this goal to be the greenest city. We have a city staff that I would guess is generally very progressive, 
And then we're stuck in this quagmire that we can't seem to get out of. And, and we're going to talk about the last four years and, and what's happened there. But, but how do you square those two things? Yeah, here's the bottom line. One of the most important things, maybe the most important things we can do to fight the climate crisis, to reduce our carbon consumption, is to live in compact urban communities that are walkable uh, and that support transit and active transportation. That is the single probably most important thing we can do in our lives is to build better cities and encourage people to live in them. The other side of this is, you know, something that I think that Vancouver is quite good at is sort of controlling some of the technological aspects, you know, like building more energy efficient buildings and moving away from gas towards electrical stuff, right? Like that's good. That's important. But here's the thing, a perfectly energy efficient building that is, you know, built to the highest standards of energy consumption and all that. If you build it in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by a parking lot and everybody has to drive to and from it to get to it that building is still a climate disaster, right? We need to build these better, complete communities that are, you know, and look, people like these communities. People go to Europe or, you know, to other cities around the world and they're like, this is great. This is beautiful. I can walk around. It's lively. It's vibrant. Like those are the sort of communities we should be building, not just this unending sprawl. And so there's a real tension in the city, I think, between recognizing that and, um, you know, it's easier for politicians to mandate, oh, we're going to no longer allow natural gas. It's easier to sort of do stuff like that than to foster sort of the complete communities. And I got to take this opportunity to point out that's one of the reasons why I'm especially disappointed in the Vancouver Greens. Um, they they have this, you know, the name green, they've got the branding down. They like to act as if they are climate champions, but they are one of the most housing skeptical parties on council. Adrian Carr and Pete Fry in particular vote against so much housing. They voted against incredibly highly um, transit-oriented housing. They voted against apartments, rental apartments, with a below-market component right by SkyTrain stations. That's not green. That is harmful to climate action. So that's one thing I would you know, I want to say is that if you are also somebody that is worried about the climate crisis, the Vancouver Greens are not a party for you because they are part of the problem in the city that resist taking the steps that we need to take to build better, more sustainable cities. Why do you think that is with, with the Green Party specifically? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I can't peer in anyone's mind, right? So I can't say. I mean, that's sort of the joke is that they are, uh, you know, Tories and Teslas, right? That they have sort of a, <laughs> a fundamentally conservative um, uh, viewpoint on the world. And I think there's some truth to that, you know, that there are some people, some people, especially of an older generation, perhaps, their vision of what green is, is like a nice big house in Carisdale with a green lawn, nice, right? Nice like that's garden. a very, yeah, right? yeah, that's a very superficial understanding of what green is. Dense urban communities. The West End is more green than, you know, sprawling yards are, right? And so I think that's part of the problem. Um, you know, Adrian Carr is an interesting example because uh, she her she wrote her master's thesis. I think it's in urban planning, but exactly which department it was in. But um, it's available online. You can read it. And it's basically this ode to how great the, at the time it was called the Kits Ratepayers Association. It's this ode to how great this community association was for fighting off apartments in Kits. And so I think there is, for some people, sort of, um, it's really an aesthetic sort of cultural view that, you know, more compact, denser urban forms are somehow undesirable. And I think the people who view that way aren't keeping up with how I think a lot of young people want to live, how a lot of other cities have very successfully built these sort of compact urban environments and very livable 
great way, family-oriented way, and sustainable way. So um, I think there is sort of a, a cultural aesthetic aspect to it. You know, we, we want to have you back, Peter, to, to kind of give a grade to the current council. We've talked about them before. And, you know, I think you're the best person to do this because you literally have spent hours and hours watching painful council meetings, right? Generally speaking, two weeks before the election, can we give a grade to this current council? Yeah, it's tricky because, you know, um, I'm happy. I'll give it a shot. But it's, it is a bit tricky because, amongst other things, um, uh, the parties haven't always voted together, right? So it's kind of an individual sort of thing. But I'll, I'll give it a shot. So uh, the I will start off with the, I think there's only two people on council I can give my sort of close to unqualified praise to. Um, let's call it, you know, a a minus maybe. You know, the, I mean, just because the council as a whole was kind of a disaster. But these two count, these two people, I think, did the best they could in a very difficult environment. And that's Mayor Kennedy Stewart, and that's Christine Boyle of One City. They both consistently voted for housing, and not only for individual housing projects, but for housing reform, for policy reform. And I should maybe talk about that for a moment here. You know, um, you, housing is one thing that makes it a bit difficult to talk about council's term, is that you can't. I don't think it's very meaningful to just count up yes and no votes. That was part of the story. It's important to vote for housing. It's better to vote for housing than against housing. But the system itself is broken, right? Just voting for the individual projects that that are lucky enough to make it through this grueling multi-year process. I mean, damn, right? You better vote for these projects at this point. Staff have been working on them for literally years, right? Like, and we're talking about individual apartment buildings here in a city, you know, of the size of Vancouver. So, uh, you know, just, I think, counting up yes or no votes only tells part of the story. You also need to look at sort of a qualitative assessment to look at what, you know, what are the, what are the important votes? And on the important votes, on the votes that actually look to ch- not just to approve individual buildings, but to try and change the system, to try and broadly legalize more housing. The mayor and Christine Boyle, I think, are the only two that really um, did a good job. They were the only ones who really were willing to embrace some actual change. And I think overall, they did a good job of council. Like this council overall was profoundly dysfunctional. It was a divided council that um, really struggled. I mean, it's one thing to disagree with a politician, but this council really just struggled to move business along. They tried just, it was a tough time for them just getting anything done. They Bickered. They were involved in this procedural wrangling. They pulled stunts. They, they were just at times just literally collapsed into dysfunctional chaos. With people talking over each other, and it was, it was it was bad. It was it was a bad council. And the mayor and Christine Boyle, I think, are the only two that really really took a serious professional approach to trying to move business along and to try and keep things together. So th- those are the two I single out as sort of um, you know you might not agree with them on everything. But having watched a lot of council, they at least tried to keep the train moving and tried to sort of. You I know. feel like last time you were on, and I can't recall exactly what it was, but some you had some examples of like just egregious behavior. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so okay, if, so starting off with the best, that's uh, Christine Boyle and the mayor. Um, in terms of the worst, in terms of just sort of procedurally the worst, not necessarily the worst in terms of substance, but the worst in procedural stuff was Melissa DeGenova of uh, the NPA. She, if you've ever listened to counsel, you've probably heard her over talking over other people, trying to do amendments to amendments to amendments. And just really, it was uh, her conduct was at times, I think, again, agree with her on the substance or disagree with her. Her conduct was just procedurally, I think, unprofessional. 
Um, I think it was really, it was, it was as somebody who just, you know, wants counsel to do stuff. It was painful to watch in large part because of her at times. So I think in terms of procedural, just sort of just dysfunction, she deserves a special uh, call out. You know, even the mayor has called her out at times, which is pretty unusual for him. He tried to sort of be a bit, you know, cooperative with people. But um, yeah, no, she was, she was very difficult. She really made it tough for council to get stuff done. Maybe I kind of want to run through some specific votes so we get a handle on how people are voting. But, you know, just one more general question, because, you know, you've mentioned the mayor a couple of times. Right now, it seems like it's a bit of a horse race here for the next mayor. Does who the mayor of Vancouver is matter? Yeah, I think it does. Um, so for a brief sort of refresher, we have what's called a, a weak mayor system, right? Which is not like about any individual mayor. That's just the name of the system because to get anything done, the mayor is just one vote on council, right? It's not like in some systems, you know, the um, the mayor is more like the president or, you know, the prime minister or something like that where staff report to the mayor and the mayor could be like, hey, work on this. You know, these are my priorities. Start doing this. The mayor right. can't do that in our system. For staff to do anything, there has to be a vote of the entire council. So in that sense, the mayor is, you know, just one vote out of 11. But on the other side, the mayor does represent the city on um, to other levels of government. The mayor participates in the mayor's council, which is like the regional council of mayors, which is where transit priorities are decided, and, and you know, and things like that. So um, the mayor does matter. You know, I think the overall council matters a great deal because uh, we need a, a good mayor with a bad council can't get anything done, right? But that being said, you know, it's still better to have a, a good mayor than than a bad mayor. And on this regard, I got to say I'm I'm disappointed in Ken Sim. And ABC, the ABC, so they've got three counselors right now, uh, Lisa Dominato, uh, Sarah Kirby Young, and uh, Rebecca Bly. They're all elected under the NPA in the last election, but the NPA imploded with internal strife, and so now they're ABC. They have, a, you know, a decent record on housing. They are people who, we can talk about this maybe at the end after we go through some of these votes we'll talk about, come back to which, you know, grading sure. the counselors. But overall, they voted for most, many individual projects. We're not so ambitious on policy reforms, but um, Dominato especially was strong on housing. She voted for almost all housing. Rebecca Bly was the weakest, but Dominato was was good. And so I was hoping that uh, Ken Sim would come out with um, some sort of meaningful housing policy this time. Like in the last election, his only housing policy was more basement suites, which is just not a serious response to the housing crisis, right? But unfortunately, this time he has said even less. Uh, I still think they have, they have, last time I checked them yesterday, they still haven't released their housing platform. They have nothing to say on housing, which to me is just a, a catastrophic failure of leadership. So yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard to recommend ABC or Ken Sim right now if you're if you're if you care about housing or the housing shortage in the city, they have nothing to say, which is to me um, really problematic. Maybe moving, let's go through some of the key issues we've we faced over the last four years, and we've talked a bit about this first one on the show uh, for sure. But we have looking. This is, I guess, looking backward, looking forward potentially. The Vancouver plan, the Broadway plan. What is it? Why does it matter? And how how did this council engage? Yeah, so these uh, the Vancouver plan and the Broadway plan, I think, are particularly interesting because they show really what was the big problem with this council. They are more interested in endless planning and endless consultation than actually taking action on housing. This entire council was elected 
saying that they were going to address the housing crisis, that they were going to get stuff done, they were going to be better on housing than previous governments were. And yet the housing crisis is worse now than it's ever been. And they've gotten almost nothing done. Their entire term, their actual actual like concrete housing reforms you can look at, this council's got done, it's almost nothing. The main things they've got done are the Vancouver plan and the Broadway plan. But that's not enough, right? So when the Vancouver plan is, um, they started doing that there almost immediately when they started uh, council. It took four years to get as far as it's done. It's not done yet. The budget for it was like $18 million. This sort of endless planning and consultation exercise. They've passed the first version of it, but it's not, there's no actual policy in it. It's just really high level sort of, um, you know, I, I've called before a plan to make a plan to make a plan. And even that's kind of generous. When you look at all the steps that needs to be done for implementation, there's, I think there's still five steps. It's, it's crazy. There's a lot of, like, there's no actual policy right. reform, concrete, nothing, you know, that comes out of the Vancouver plan yet. Um, if we get a good council next time, they might be able to accelerate it a little bit. If we get a bad one, it'll probably stall completely. So, you know, to me, just sort of planning is not a substitute for action. You know, we're in a housing crisis. We we don't need people just to sit around twiddling their thumbs. And there's some of the councillors, especially Colleen Hardwick uh, of Team, the Greens, uh, Pete Fry and Adrian Carr, them especially, they were, I think they were happy to use these endless planning and consultation exercises as an excuse to do nothing. Because every time some sort of staff or some other councillor came up with some policy idea, they would say, oh no, we got the Vancouver plan. We can't, we can't interrupt the Vancouver plan, right? Like, you know, the, we, that, maybe 30 years ago that would have flown, but like where we are now, that's just not good enough. The Broadway plan, uh, so that's what the Vancouver plan is. Very high level sort of vision for the you know city's future. Doesn't, you know, it's still, we're still years away from any actual implementation of it. The Broadway plan is a bit more specific. So the basic idea with the Broadway plan was, um, you know, the province and the federal government invested billions of dollars in building the SkyTrain line, right? Half the way to UBC, not all the way, but half the way to UBC. And um, uh, the city basically said, okay, we're going to... Um, a condition of this basically was to build more housing along it, right? And so the city undertook the Broadway plan to kind of plan for the Broadway Broadway corridor where the SkyTrain is going. So that will result, that does result in some actual policy. Like if you are a property developer or nonprofit or for-profit, there's now something you can apply under to the city to be like, hey, we own this property. This is what we want to do with it. It's consistent with the Broadway plan. The basic idea is more density around the SkyTrain stations, bit more density where there's existing apartments, but there's a lot of discouraging factors to try and prevent displacement of tenants. And then not much density where it's currently low density, like in the low density parts of Mount Pleasant. Um, I think the plan wasn't ambitious enough. I think it should have done more to sort of focus new housing in the low density areas because that's where the risk of displacement is the lowest and that's the areas that can most accommodate growth. But that actually did, that did pass. But again, this was a policy that was actually started the Broadway planning process by the previous council. So over four years ago, you know, it took years and years, millions of dollars, who knows how many thousands of hours of consultations and workshops and planning, all to come up with a pretty, you know, mediocre sort of not that ambitious policy. So, you know, for a council that was elected to take action on housing, spend four years, and these are basically your two accomplishments. I think that's not nearly enough. I think they were, some of these councillors, again, especially Hardwick and the Greens, were happy to use these endless planning, just twiddling their thumbs as an excuse so they don't have to make any decisions themselves. 
Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Should should Kennedy Stewart own some of that for for not being able to kind of mobilize troops? Yeah, it's a it's a tricky question. Um, I tend to be sympathetic towards the mayor um, in this regard. I mean, I, ultimately, yes, the buck does stop with him. And he ran in the last election on a promise he's an independent. I can work with people, bring him together. So, yes, he, he, he's not without blame. That being said, as somebody who watched a lot of council, it's really hard to— like overstate how dysfunctional this council was and how like Colleen Hardwick of team, she was working, she was using everything she could to obstruct decision-making, to slow things down, to cause problems. You know, the Greens too were, I think, unwilling to take real action on, on housing reform. So, you know, does he deserve some blame? Yes. Yes, I do think he does. I'm skeptical that anybody would have been able to sort of corral this group of dysfunctional counselors into making real progress on, on anything. Is it? It seems crazy at the at the local level, maybe not, but in my mind, is it too cynical to think that certain council members wasted potentially millions of dollars to maintain the status quo? Oh, I think that's absolutely what's going on. If you like the status quo, right, dysfunction works great for you. Right. If you like the status quo and, uh, you know, I'm, just, I'm talking here about uh, Hardwick here in team, right, who is absolutely the status quo party. They are the party of people who already own large houses and don't want any new neighbors, don't want their neighborhoods to change at all. You know, uh, if you are have that view, if you're one of these neighborhood association people who your top concern, you, you know, you're comfortably housed, you just don't want to see change in your neighborhood. Dysfunction works great for you. 
right? It's the status quo. It just drags it out. Um, you know, Hardwick is somebody who, you know, she tries to talk about just on this topic of sort of fiscal prudence and stuff like that. She tried to introduce a motion that would have <laughs> added a new aesthetic character bureaucracy for every single new home in the city. This would have cost who knows how much. I'm sure just some absolutely sky, you know, some huge amount. But she was happy just to try and throw it out there and try and get, you know, try to get this done, this done. Because to her, that's what matters. This sort of low-density suburban feel of neighborhoods and keeping people out. And so, yeah, I think if you like the status quo, keeping it dragging on as long as you can by any way you can is a, is a, it's a strategy. Absolutely. Do you think so? I'm just trying to think uh, within the context of, it seems like a lot of people are, it's, it's a, it's a horse race. It's Ken Sim and Kennedy Stewart, right? Kennedy Stewart has the past four years, a record of not doing enough with council. Ken Sim, it sounds like doesn't have a strong enough platform to be recognized as someone who's going to be a serious advocate for, for more housing. I guess it's a question of <laughs> which candidate do you think people that are are really focusing on the housing issue are going to choose someone who's got a, a a record of not doing anything or somebody who doesn't have a strong enough platform? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think if you are a housing, if you are somebody who cares about housing, if you agree that the city house has a housing shortage, I think that Kennedy Stewart is the clear vote. I think Ken Sim just hasn't said or done anything to make me think he's serious about meaningful land use reform, um, especially given that his sort of base is the is the west side, right? Um, and Carisdale, Dunbar, these sorts of neighborhoods, right? Because that's where this new housing needs to go. It's not, we can't carry on this cycle we have now where the only legal place to build a build an apartment building is on top of an old one, right? That's unjust. That drives these cycles of displacement. We need to open up the huge amounts of the city geographically that have for decades had flat or even shrinking populations because their housing is so exclusive, so exclusionary, right? Uh, we need to build more housing in those neighborhoods especially. And I, I don't have any confidence that Ken Sim uh, has a serious plan to do that personally. Again, it's tough because like some of his counselors do have pretty strong records. Uh, Dominado, again, I think deserves particular praise here. I think she would have been even better if it weren't for some highly partisan votes that she was maybe, you know, had to vote with her party sort of against some housing proposals. But that being said, if it comes down to the two of them, I think uh, Kennedy Stewart is the choice for housing people. I think with a more supportive council, he could get real stuff done. So just thinking about um, kind of, I guess, piggybacking on that question a little bit, but more at the council level, because as we've discussed, it's, it's as, as important. Uh, My visceral reaction is to clean house, right? And I think the the only thing prefacing that is, I feel like I felt like that four years ago, or at least a lot of people did. And then we got this mishmash of people where, you know, Francis Beulah came on the show and said, like, nobody knows where the bathroom is. This is, it leads to, you know, a lot of wasted time because there's no kind of institutional memory really amongst counselors or whatever, do you think it's productive? Not necessarily. We've already covered the mayor, I guess. But is it productive to try and basically vote out, you know, the lot of them and and start afresh here, or or is it kind of choose your top three or four and and build from there? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's it's hard to predict the future, right? Uh, the only counselor I genuinely think deserves to come back is Christine Boyle of One City. That's the rest of them. The Greens, I think, were 
a disaster on council. The former NPA, Colleen Hardwick, was a disaster on council. The rest of the, the current ABC people were a bit of a mixed bag. Gene Swanson was, I think, counterproductive. I'm glad there's a voice for you know, the downtown east side and for people living in poverty to have on council, but I think she was counterproductive on council. So, yeah, I mean, that was in my, if I could, you know, if I call the shots, I would have um, Christine Boll be the only one coming back. Uh, so, I mean, I think, and I think though another divided council, the one we saw um, this last time, which, with, without a clear majority for anything really, that would be another, that'd be a very bad thing for Vancouver. Mm. I really think Vancouver cannot afford another four wasted years because absolutely the last four years were wasted. They were squandered. So, and just thinking about that strategically, is it then, you know, regardless of anyone's politics, should people be voting along party lines? Because that's, you know, we've talked about this before in these municipal elections. It's like, you know, there's a thousand names. It's like, I know who Roller Girl is. I'm not sure where the rest of them stand unless they have that, you know, party affiliation. Does it make sense if you're like, hey, I like Ken Sim. Hey, I like Kennedy Stewart. Hey, I like One City. Just bang, full slate. Yeah, for the most part, I think it does. You know, the parties do, it is an overwhelming ballot. It's really long and it's, uh, the names are randomly sorted. So it's, you know, you can't even look alphabetically for somebody or, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a challenging ballot just to navigate through. And so I do think that's one of the functions of the party system right now is, you know, you can be pretty confident that the people in the same party have, you know, have at least something in common, right? And so, yeah, absolutely. I think one city, if you believe in, we need more housing, I think the strongest parties are one city, without a doubt, forward. That's Kennedy, uh, Kennedy Stewart's sort of current party. They're strong. Um, I want to give a particular shout out to Russell, Russell Vong, and to uh, Dulcie Anderson, who are two of his candidates. They're both really strong. And I think people who really get it on housing, they're both really strong candidates. Uh, Vision, they're running three candidates. Uh, Leslie Bolt is somebody in particular I recommend. And then there's Progress Vancouver, which is uh, Mark Marison's party, who um, personally I think really gets it on housing. I'm not sure... The latest poll didn't wasn't great for him, so right. you know I'm not. You know, it's difficult to. Uh, anyways, I don't want to say anything because I like I, I. You know I think I think progress has a lot some great stuff going for them too. But those are the really I think the the pro housing parties. Um, selecting ten people from that that's more than ten people right there. The people that stay away from on the other hand I think are team. Team is a. Um, a team council would be a disaster for the city. I really mean that. Um, the Greens too I think are really problematic. I think they, you know, um, they vote against just far too much housing for anybody who cares about Vancouver's housing crisis to support. Okay, Peter, we did have a couple of different kind of ways into understanding the, the current council and the ways they're voting when it comes to housing. Uh, we've already covered the Vancouver plan and Broadway plan. It sounds like they're getting an F grade or, or maybe Broadway plan a, a D minus, as I understand it. What about the emergency in term zoning policy for Broadway quarter? Corridor to UBC. Yeah, it's a mouthful, right? So this is, um, I, I think this is an interesting vote because I think it really illustrates. So the previous sort of, um, the Broadway plan, that sort of shows, you know, this council was too preoccupied with just endless planning rather than taking action. And this vote, the interim rezoning policy, is another example of um, just trying to just sheer in action. And so especially early on in this council's term, for the first year or two, their main priority seemed to be just stopping, just stopping stuff from happening. So this was a motion that was brought by Pete Fry of the Vancouver Greens. And uh, the basic idea was to freeze all rezoning applications in Kitsilano and West Point Grey. 
Now, the idea was it was sort of extending. A similar thing happened during the Broadway plan process, right? They were like, okay, we have this new subway. We have this Broadway plan going on to stop, to limit speculation. We should sort of pause development until we come up with this comprehensive new plan. So this, this just to be clear, happened... This happened at the beginning Be- of council's right, term. before before the Broadway plan. So this this vote happened before the Broadway plan was passed. The Broadway right. plan was already sort of happening. But so Fry was basically said, hey, we should extend this moratorium on redevelopment, on rezonings to all of the west side of Vancouver, basically, well, to Kitts and to uh, West Point Gray. So the entire city west of Vine and north of 16th. And it passed. So there's basically a freeze on all rezonings, except for some um, social housing and uh, market and, and rental housing. And that rental housing exception was introduced by staff, not by Pete Fry. But there's basically a, a freeze on all redevelopment in Kitts and West Point Grey. Now, this is actually pretty shocking, I think, right? We're in a city in a housing crisis where there's not enough housing. West Point Grey is one of the exclusive low-density neighborhoods there is. And one of the first things Pete Fry wanted to do and that got counsel to go along with him on is to freeze new housing options in these areas. Now, this is especially kind of remarkable since the UBC subway hasn't even been funded yet. It's still, you know, the wheels are sort of, the planning wheels are sort of happening, but it's not funded. We don't know when it's going to be built. It could be another 10, 20 years easily, right? It's not actually something that's happening. And we have this sort of indefinite freeze on new housing in Kitts and West Point Grey, two of the most expensive, exclusive neighborhoods in the city. To me, it's it's a shocking sort of uh, thing for council to have done. So just, just to be clear, Pete Fry was the one who brought the motion to council, but yeah. council... Council voted for it and approved it, yeah. And is this, so is this still on the books? I mean, it's still on the books. It's kind of, its status is, again, like this is one of these things. I follow this a lot closer than a lot of people do. And even I'm like, I I don't really know, right? So the wording of it is something like until the citywide plan and area plans are completed. Right. Who knows what that means? The Vancouver plan, they voted for it, but it hasn't actually been implemented yet. Right. There isn't actually any policy yet. And there isn't any equivalent of the Broadway plan for the rest of uh, the Broadway corridor going out to UBC. Right. So is it still in the books? It's kind of, I mean, it's still in the books. It's definitely like you can look at its city policy. Its current name is, um, Oh, sorry, I didn't type it up. It has some really lengthy name. Its original name was the Emergency Interim Zoning Policy for Broadway Corridor to UBC. It's still on the books. I think, as far as I can tell, it's still in effect. So there's basically a new housing freeze in Kitts and West Point Gray that's that, that's out there. It's, I agree, it's shocking, right? This is the exact opposite of what the city needs. But it's really, again, at the beginning of this council's term, they were obsessed with kind of trying to say, stop, less housing, no new housing. They spun their wheels for several months at the beginning of the council, this council's term, trying to relitigate and cancel um, the legalization of duplexes that had been done by the previous council. You know, like even the smallest step in the city sort of results in like endless years of bickering, right? And it's just, it's so counterproductive and it's not what this city city needs. The next one is streamlining rental policy. Yeah, so this is another sort of good example of um, backsliding in this city of their sort of... Um, hesitancy to encourage new housing and to, uh, to take needed action. So there's a bit of background to this. So in 2012, the previous, one of the, you know, one of the previous councils enacted what's called the Affordable Housing Choices Interim Rezoning Policy. And this was a policy that basically allowed for some townhomes, you know, around the city, some rental apartments, some things like that, right? Well, this was a pilot program that expired in June 2019. Was it replaced? No. This council didn't get around to replacing it until December 2021. Over about two and a half years, 
the previous policy has expired and was not replaced. And its new replacement is called, when they finally did pass, it's called the Streamlining Rental Policy. But again, this took years of consultation. Staff tried to bring part of it to council in June 2020, but Adrian Carr of the Greens led a motion that got passed to basically turf it and send it all back for more consultation. Now, my understanding is that this was pretty shocking to staff. Staff viewed this as kind of a no-brainer. It basically would have allowed... Um, it allowed for rezoning applications in sort of shopping areas, C2 districts, which are like little shopping areas on like main streets and stuff like that, right? Um, my understanding is that staff were pretty sort of shocked by this, and it kind of derailed the whole process. So what should have been sort of a no-brainer turned into this multi-year saga where there was no rezoning policy for rental apartments uh, on off, you know, off arterial streets and even on many major streets at all in the city. So in uh, I confirmed this in September 2021. I asked staff, what policies are in place today that are accepting applications for rental rezonings, especially off arterials? Staff answered, this is a quote, as of now, there are currently no policy doors for new rezoning proposals in low-density areas outside of community plans. The doors closed with the Affordable Housing Choices Interim Rezoning Policy in June 2019. Now, this, to me, is really shocking. We've learned a lot over the years about how living on dense, polluted arterial roads has you know, negative consequences, health consequences, there's pollution, it's dangerous, right? And just the entire idea that renters, they should be allowed to live on our city's beautiful leafy green streets. Or, or even condo owners, right? right? Like exactly, Mike Bucci right? was just on the show saying the exact same, yeah, saying thing. The exact right? same it's, thing. It's crazy that we don't allow these housing options on our side streets, on our qu nice, quiet sort of streets. And many of these counselors, uh, Adrian Carr is a good example, say, oh, we need to encourage more options for this. Right? But when they actually have a chance to do it, they, they stab it in the back and they don't allow it. So for two and a half years, there was no policy. And when the policy, just one more thing, when the policy was passed, it was actually in many ways cut back from the policy that had first been passed in 20, uh, in 2012. So this council did approve two rental apartments in Shaughnessy um, on Granville, on, like on Granville Street, like 25th and 33rd, I can't remember exactly where. Both of those sites were brought under the previous policy, the Affordable Housing Choices Policy, right? But those areas were cut out of the stream, the new, the current streamlining rental policy because staff knows when, when, when council sends something back for more consultation, staff knows what that means. Council's telling them, cut it back, make the NIMBYs happier, cut it back, make it smaller, make it less, less housing, make, produce less options. So after all these years of consultation, of more planning, we ended up with a policy that is in many ways less ambitious than the policy that was passed in 2012. And after all this fighting, it's because council is so afraid of new housing, it's a pretty useless policy. Uh, so the off arterial option, which allows for rental apartments of up to four floors, basically like half a block off from the arterial, not very far. Those buildings are so economically unviable. Only two of them, two applications have been filed since this policy was, was adopted a year ago. It's a, it's a real symptomatic to me of how this council refused to take action. In many ways, they took steps backwards from the policies they inherited from previous governments. And uh, that's why one of the reasons why the housing crisis is worse than it's ever been. You know, in a lot of ways, it's it's something like that just makes me think it's like the things you don't know, right? Like no one knows that that policy just went dormant and how many homes could have been built because the process is so arduous and long. Losing a couple of years is just insane and tragic and something that probably no one even knows about other than uh, now people listening to the Vancouver Real Estate <laughs> Podcast. 
Uh, Merp. Yeah, so the Merp, that's a, yeah, no, it's a funny name, right? It rhymes with Burp. That's what I always say. So that's the Moderate Income Rental Housing Pilot Program. So this is another example. It's similar to the SRP of a policy that this council inherited and then basically killed off or, you know, sort of backslid on. So this was the, a policy that was adopted by the previous council to encourage below market rental housing. So the basic idea is you when you apply into this program, you can get in certain locations, you can get a bit more density, build a bit of a bigger building than you would otherwise would be allowed to. And exchange, 20% of the homes measured by floor area are below market, right? So basically the market homes cross-subsidize the below market homes, right? So it's a pretty effective policy um, it man, you know, in the sense that it's kind of the only city policy that's managed to get um, sort of anything below market built. And so there's a few of them that I think are particularly interesting. The one I'll sort of focus on right now is one at um, at, at Larch, a Larch and Second in, uh, in in Kits. This was like a five story rental apartment, partly below market in Kits. You know, this is exactly the sort of low rise that people, when they're opposing towers, they say, "Oh, well, I would support low rise or mid rise, more spread out throughout the city." Right. So this is a great example of that. This was a five floor building on a vacant lot, so there's zero displacement um, right across the street from it, there's already existing apartments, right? So this is a perfect location for something Fits like this. Fits into the neighborhood. Fits into the neighborhood. Despite this, Hardwick, Carr, and Gene Swanson all voted against it, which to me is just absolutely indefensible. There's no rational reason to vote against this building in that location. To me, that was just a profound failure of them. Some other prominent MERPs were the, in the Broadway and Alma. Again, Hardwick, Carr, and Swanson all voted against that. Those three really formed the council's sort of core anti-new housing right. sort of crew. Interestingly, from across the political spectrum as well. Right. It's really uh, the the Hardwick. Um, yeah, so Hardwick is team. Carr is the Greens. Gene Swanson is with Cope. But they all are housing skeptical. They, right? they found common cause. They found common cause in opposing, <laughs> you know, low-rise apartments and kits. Right. Like it's to me, it's, you know, this is one of the reasons why as much as I would, I I, I wish Gene Swanson could be somebody I could support. I think this this is counterproductive. This hurts renters to, you know, housing scarcity like this hurts everybody, hurts renters. And to vote against, uh, you know, everyone like that, there's no reason for it. And so one more I'm going to quickly talk about is the one at um, Broadway and Birch. That was the old Denny's site there, right? That's another one right in between. There's going to be a new SkyTrain station on Broadway and Granville, another one at Broadway and uh, Laurel. So it's right in between these two SkyTrain stations, highly transit-oriented, but uh, Again, the, uh, Adrian Carr and Pete Fry of the Greens both voted against it. So did Swanson, Hardwick, and Bly. These votes, these individual projects are indefensible. But even worse, in my view, is that Merp is now basically dead. Even though it succeeded in getting some badly needed rental housing built, some badly needed below market even rental housing built, um, it's basically dead. So it was capped at 20 um, applications. This is a pilot program. But it only got, I think, about 12 because the projects are just like barely economically viable. Right. Uh, so it, contrary to this idea that these things are developer giveaways, you know, the city couldn't even find 20 sites across the city that would make this make these things work. And so staff came forward or I can't remember, I think in early 2021, basically saying, hey, we have an idea to try and save MERP. 
in the original program, it had um, vacancy control, which means that rents can only rise. Rent control is tied to the unit, not to the tenant, right? Most rentals, you can only raise rent according to the Residential Tenancy Act by a certain percentage every year. But when the tenant moves out and new one comes in, you can the landlord can reset the rent, right? Under vacancy control, you can't reset the rent. It just goes up by the you know, that amount every year, whether tenants move in or out. Staff said, hey, this is kind of what's causing problems with the viability of these programs. We're going to, we suggest tweaking it so that when a tenant moves out, the rents can reset to the target affordability level, which is about 20% below, if I recall, market rents. So, um, you know, it's still, it's partial vacancy control. It can't just go up to market rent. It's still going to be below market, but it can right. reset to that initial sort of level. But sadly, uh, Carr, Fry, Weeb, Hardwick, and Swanson all voted against that proposed tweak with the result that um, MERP is now dead. My understanding is there's no more applications coming in. It's effectively a dead policy, which, you know, you can say, okay, I support vacancy control. Um, you do or you don't, right? But I think ultimately you have to ask, like, is some buildings with sort of some below market component better than no houses, no homes with theoretical vacancy control, right? Like yeah, to me, like per- you know, perfection is the enemy of good. Exactly, right. So that's so MERP was a, a solid program that got some badly needed um, below market housing built, especially in the west side of Vancouver. Is one of the only policies that allowed for rezoning applications for rental housing in the west side of Vancouver, and um, it's unfortunately dead now. Another policy that sort of was killed off by this council. Last but not least, 12-floor or 12-story social housing buildings. Yeah, this was an important vote because I think it really sort of showed which councillors were willing to make concrete sort of um, land use reform. So the background to this is that um, staff in, um, oh, I I think it was early 2021. I'm sorry, I forgot my notes. But um, brought forward a policy that was basically saying, hey, okay, we've been directed by council to look into ways to get more below-market housing built, Right. So um, what we're going to propose is in some areas, in some zones where currently basically four-floor apartments are allowed, we're going to say, make it legal to build six floors of housing if it's owned by a nonprofit, if it's nonprofit, social, or co-op housing. Six floors, it'll make it easier for them. It'll save them huge amounts of money because these rezoning processes are extremely expensive, right? And uh, council approved that. They find they it, it's kind of controversial, but they approved this proposal. But one of the things all the nonprofit leaders said during this process was, hey, six floors is great, but realistically, it doesn't help us too much, right? It's not viable for us to, you know I mean? Like that's not, it doesn't help us that much. We, we need more. We need 10 floors. We need 12 floors. That's what would really like help us get more housing built. So Christine Boyle of One City came up with a proposal to basically extend that six-floor motion to 12 floors. And again, it's not across the entire city. It's only in areas where apartments are already allowed. And so to me, unfortunately, only Boyle, Swanson, and Stewart supported this move. Carr, Fry, Kirby Young, Dominato, Bly, Hardwick, DeGenova, all united against it. So the NPA team and Greens basically all teamed up to uh, to vote down this policy. And to me, this is really, you know, again, just illustrates that this council did not want to take actual action on housing, right? What sort of, you know, they didn't want, this was something that would have made it easier and cheaper to build affordable housing, which most people say we need. But when they had a concrete opportunity to do it, most of this council said no. Probably because there was a lot of um, misinformation organized by community groups, uh, by things like that, saying that, oh, it's the death of democracy. It's, you know, it's going to be apartments all across the city when it was in reality restricted just a few zones. So again, to me, this vote really shows, again, you know, Christine Boyle was a counselor who was actually wanted to 
try and get something done. <laughs> uh, whereas most of the council, all they had was no, we don't want to do anything. Death of democracy. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I think the city has too much democracy. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on how you look at, I mean, it depends what you think democracy is, right? I think democracy is uh, electing leaders who, who make decisions, right? Democracy does not require that every single piece of housing requires a political vote uh, by the mayor and council. To me, that is not democracy. In fact, it's anti-democratic because, as I said earlier, the consultation processes are not neutral. They're not equally available to everybody. They favor incumbents. There's been research that has shown this, that people who um, are involved in these neighborhood associations, for example, are whiter, um, more landowning, and more retired than Vancouver at all. You know, go to one of these public hearings. Um, if you can stomach it, you know, <laughs> go for it, right? They do not come anywhere close to representing Vancouver's diversity. So the idea that democracy requires that every every home requires this really bizarre process, to me, is just fundamentally misguided. It's actually anti-democratic because it puts more power in the hands of smaller, unrepresentative groups of people. Real democracy is getting involved with your um, with your politicians, with your, you know, with, by voting. That's sort of the base level, right? And so that's one of the reasons why I do is I really want people to, to know what's going on and to, to get out and vote, especially young people and renters are massively underrepresented in voter turnout in the city. And so I really urge people to participate because what happens in city council really, really matters. Um, uh, it's, it's really important. And I, you know, just want to reiterate Again, the Colleen Hardwick and team, like so that anti-democratic stuff. Part of that came from um, some of her, one of somebody who's now running for her uh, team, uh, one of her council candidates. Uh, and I really think it would be a disaster for the city if team got into power. It would be, it would hurt renters. It would drive run eviction, them evictions across the city. It would uh, be great for people who don't want to see a future for the next generation or for immigrants or for just for opportunity and vitality in the city, who view the city as something, you know, to be frozen in amber and kind of appreciated from afar as a service. You know, I mean, that's not the city I want to see. I want to see, a, you know, I'm the child of immigrants. I want to see a city that has welcomed immig immigrants, that has opportunity, that has vitality, that has life. You know, that's the city I want I want to see, that has room for renters, has room for people to own, own their homes. And, and uh, that's what I really want to see in this future. And I think that is sort of at stake in this coming election. I think we can't afford another four years of an ina of inaction we can't afford you know blatantly anti-housing parties like team to have power in the city and i think it's important so i really urge your listeners to to devote and to pay attention fantastic peter well a, a lot to unpack and think about for for everybody listening how can people find out and i should say of course and i said it last time plug for following you on twitter uh but how can people find out about more about what you're doing uh, yeah, thanks. So, yep, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my name is Peter Waldkirch. My handle is P Waldkirch. So that's first initial P W A L D K I R C H P Waldkirch uh, on Twitter. Um, so you can find me there. I'm also, like I mentioned, involved with uh, active with uh, Abundant Housing Vancouver. So if you just Google up Abundant Housing Vancouver, um, you know, I'd suggest signing up for um, AHV's mailing list. It's a great way. You know, we try to send out emails when there's a good opportunity, when some policies at stake, uh, when, you know, there's a good opportunity to get involved and just know what's going on and ideally make your voice heard. So I'd really encourage everybody to uh, sign up for um, AHV's mailing list too. Well, thanks again for coming down uh, to the studio today, Peter, and uh, we'll see what happens here. It's uh, We're getting close.
Great. Thanks all for having me. I really appreciate it. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with lawyer, housing advocate, and Twitter phenomenon. Let's put it that way, Peter Waldkirch. This may, may, so first of all, fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed having Peter in studio. Super bright guy, super passionate. You know, what you couldn't see at home is uses his hands. Like that's how passionate he oh, is. He's it was, gesturing. Yeah, it's fun to watch him talk. I just feel like he's a, he's a good speaker. And he's he's such a good a, commentator. Yeah, such a bright guy. Yeah. Now just moving on to one housekeeping item because this is, I'm, I'm not making a play for ABC here, but I want to make one thing clear because Peter, I think his take was that he doesn't feel like ABC's housing platform is strong enough, but it came across that they don't have one. And I just want to be clear because uh, I've spent a lot of time on ABC's website and they have a pretty extensive, I think it's like a seven point housing plan on their website that I just want to clarify. If someone actually thinks they don't have a housing plan, go to abcvancouver.ca. You can see their platform right there. It's laid out very clearly. Whether or not you think it's enough, I think there's some really good ideas there. But take it for, with a grain of salt uh, for what it's worth. Yeah, absolutely. What else do we have uh, before we cut for the day? As a final point, Adam, and I think Peter would say this, and I feel like we've talked to a lot of people, and I don't know if it came. It doesn't matter who you vote for. Just vote. Please vote. vote. This is an important election. These you elections have like fig- no turnout. It's crazy. And and. You know, in your day-to-day life, these uh, local elections are far more important than any other. So politics are local. Get get out and vote. If you want to learn more about real estate, though, yes. you can head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That is where all things real estate related live. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for things like the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer where we have stats before anyone else, different types of stats, deal of the month, VIP presale access, commercial, residential, you name it, we have it. We also have private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips. This is the best time to be using PCS really because you're seeing what stuff is selling for, not what its stuff is listed for. And uh, that's the game changer. And you know what? And right now there's sometimes quite a disconnect. It's unbelievable. Get on PCS. You can sign up uh, on our site or get in touch. And Matt, how can people get in touch with you? Well, before that, Adam, I just wanted to say very quickly, we do have our shirts. We have lots of shirts. <laughs> We've given away. We just gave away. We some just gave away a bunch shirts. of shirts. Yeah. Where people are reviewing, getting in touch. It's, uh, it, it's, it's amazing with these shirts. Yes. Getting them out there for sure. And, and Matt, I want to say, I, I think we're getting really close to um, doing some Instagram contests for some shirts, for some V-Rep packages. If you're not following us on Insta- Instagram, it's Vancouver Real Estate Podcast is the handle. Go follow us on Instagram. Lots of great content, uh, some upcoming contests, and uh, get yourself a shirt. Absolutely. And if you want to talk about shirts or real estate or anything else, well, maybe not shirts, give me a call at 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Okay, guys, have a great week and uh, more great content coming and go out and vote. Happy Thanksgiving. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.